Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. Good Friday heralded the start of a wave of national depression with the announcement that the current shutdown would continue at least until after the Maybank holiday. The Taoiseach's video wishes for a happy Easter rang somewhat hollow in this context. He stressed how important it was for us to persevere and adhere to the restrictions. It's possible that we haven't seen the peak yet. And when it comes, perhaps later this month, we will experience some of our darkest days. So we need to maintain our discipline and resolve in the knowledge that better days are to come. Over the weekend, meanwhile, Gardaí cleared sunbathers from parks and swimming spots around Dublin and mounted checkpoints aimed at deterring those determined to head down the country as normal for the bank holiday weekend. Today we take a look at what the government and health authorities are trying to achieve here and how likely it is to be successful in terms of public cooperation. We talk to Pete Lunn, behavioural economist with the SRI, and Paul Cullen, health editor of the Irish Times. First, Paul Cullen. Paul, we're into a three-week stretch of this difficult lifestyle. What's the objective here? I suppose it's like half-time in a game. We've done well so far. But the outcome of the game is yet to be decided and we've got to press home our advantage. And in order to press home the advantage that we've made in reducing the spread of the virus, we have to get up and running an effective testing and contact tracing regime. And we haven't done that so far. Um, I think the problems in the system have been well rehearsed. There are reasonable excuses, but other countries have done better. What we need to be able to do, and it has been defined by Tony Houlihan, is we need to be able to return results on people who are suspected of having the disease within hours, or at least within a day, so that those people can be returned to base and put out of uh, harm's way in terms of contacting other people and spreading the virus further. And that's a big ask because um, we really haven't managed it so far. There are shortages of chemicals um, there may be shortage of people even to to carry out these various operations. But we have three weeks to do it. And by the end of this three week period, when we hope to loosen up things in society and get back to a bit of normality, uh, we really need to be able to do that so we can define where the virus is circulating in, in society and uh, limited and perhaps also um, put uh, quarantines around, selective quarantines around particular parts of the country that might even be necessary. But those two measures are the beginnings of a solution that we hope that we can find over this three week period. So we do our three weeks, then what? We come to a fork in the road then. Hopefully we will have made progress in terms of going down the other side of the slope, seeing a reduction in the number of deaths and the number of ICU admissions by by three weeks time, certainly um, all the experts will be hoping for that. But how fast and how steep will that decline be? We'll face a choice between trying to suppress the disease completely or trying to just get along with whatever cases we have and mitigate the effects of the coronavirus um, so, that, so that the number of cases are within our capacity within the hospital system. And that could go on for quite some time. Um, if we're aiming for suppression, there are people... Out, there who advocate that we need further measures uh, to prevent, for example, people traveling across borders, importing cases of disease. So we look, for example, at Wuhan in China, 
um, New Zealand is also at the moment following a policy of trying to suppress the disease. Um, that's quite ambitious. And it's even more ambitious when you consider that we think of ourselves as an island nation, but we actually have a border running right down the middle of the country or at least in the northern part of the country. And as we know, has been uh, covered extensively, uh, the UK, of which Northern Ireland is part, has taken quite a different approach, some, something of a flip-flop in policy. And they're probably behind us in terms of fighting this disease. But we will be affected by whatever happens there, uh, both in in Britain and in Northern Ireland. So it's questionable whether we can effectively suppress that the disease without cro- to- complete and total cross-border cooperation that we haven't seen up to now. So that is one option. And the other option is mitigation, um, which promises uh, some relief over time, but it could last all summer, um, whereby we continue to have cases, more and more people in the population have acquired and recovered from the disease and perhaps enjoy some immunity from it. But the threat is still there and that goes on for quite some months. Um, but at least in that way, economic activity can restart a little bit earlier to some extent. What route looks most likely to you at the moment? Well, I think for the reasons uh, surrounding the border with the north, I think the suppression strategy is quite ambitious and difficult to achieve. I don't think we have uh, set ourselves on the correct trajectory for that so far. I mean, we've done reasonably well, but we're mid-table in our performance, really, if you measure us by the number of deaths that have occurred or ICU admissions. Uh, I know all these comparisons can be invidious and there are different ways of measuring in different countries, but we are roughly in the middle of the league tables, the international league tables. So we're not in a situation where for example, in New Zealand, where they've had a, a couple of deaths only, where we've had hundreds of deaths, countries, the two countries are similar in size. And as I said, we have this border issue where the policies on either side of the border have been different and promised to continue to be different. And it's difficult to see how we can get around that. So mitigation might be the only, the more sensible or the more realistic op- option for us over the summer. We've learned that in order for this to be successful, people need to believe it's working. Do you think they believe that? Well, we have shown a remarkable level of national solidarity, of pulling together, of mehel, the various various phrases that have been used over the last few months. And I think uh, we've seen very good leadership from the top, whether it's from the government ministers or from the public health officials. I do think that's beginning to fray uh, to some extent. There have been very worrying antagonisms between city dwellers and uh, people in more rural areas over issues around holiday homes, for example. My perception of the cocooning strategy is that it has been fairly widely ignored by a lot of over 70s who feel comfortable enough in their own skin to go out against the advice. Um, So... I, and inevitably with time, I think uh, you will see more fraying and more impatience. Um, we move towards the summer as well. And uh, people will also be feeling the economic strain um, even more if it's that if that's possible. So I foresee more difficulties on that score. We haven't had harsh policing of the measures that were, have been introduced. There have been calls for that. Uh, I think that's a double that could prove a double edged sword. And while it may lead to greater enforcement of particular rules, 
it could also lead to a greater disenchantment with those rules as the weeks go by. So it's all to play for and it is uh, very hard to see for certain how we will maintain the kind of level of national solidarity that we solidarity that we saw at the start of this uh, through into the summer if it goes on that long. Do you have a sense of people's resolve holding beyond early May? Well, we've had the most restrictive measures for the last two weeks and we've had other measures for over a month. So you could say we're past the halfway point. So psychologically, I think um, you can see people's resolve holding uh, for the next three months. But I think the messages are there that there will be an expectation that the uh, measures will be unwound to some extent um, from May on. The question is whether we will actually be in a position to do that. And that also goes back to the previous question you asked me about, well, what is our actual strategy? So if our, our strategy is to suppress the disease completely, that may not be compatible with an unwinding of the measures. If we if our strategy is containment or mitigation, then I can see that happening in May and some relief occurring and some unwinding of the measures um, happening in May and thereafter. But it's a long, we're a long, long way from returning to normal existence, I'm afraid. Pete, writing in the Irish Times over a week ago, you raised the question about whether we can adapt to our new circumstances or whether they will inevitably drain our limited willpower and resilience. Where do you feel we are on that issue after the announcements on Friday? I think the answer to your question is mixed. So there's some good news. We can see in the data that's being supplied back to the behavioural change subgroup in the Department of Health, we can see in that data that most people believe actually that they're adapting better as time goes on. And as a behavioural scientist, that's what I'd expect to see when you get a deeply unpleasant shock to your well-being, as we have all experienced in this crisis, what happens is you immediately begin to feel low, but you then adapt over time. You find habits and ways of coping that mean you start to push yourself back towards more normal levels of well-being. And we can see that in the data. So when the restrictions began, um, particularly when the more severe lockdown began, we could see a big hit on people's well-being. It was essentially the equivalent psychologically of having made the entire population unemployed. It was a really big hit. And we can see that in the data. And we can then see that people are adapting and beginning to recover. They're not anywhere near back to normal levels of well-being, but they're moving back in that direction. So that's the positive story. The less positive story is the degree to which we're seeing some cracks in the solidarity. And I think that has particularly happened with the resentment of people who've decided to travel over the Easter weekend. And there's clearly quite a lot of anger about that. And that, of course, is entirely understandable. And again, not unpredictable. Um, when we are all making sacrifices for the common good and some people decide not to do that, people find it distressing and annoying. What do you think the long term effect of that kind of social policing out of control might be? I really don't know. And one of the reasons I don't know is that the behavioural science of this will tell you that circumstances like this are highly unstable. So if you have collective action problems where 
everyone is trying to behave in a particular way for the common good and making sacrifices. What we know is that the majority of people are what are called conditional cooperators. What that means is they will make those sacrifices provided they see that everyone else is doing so too. I'm one of those people. Um, I'm more than happy to make these sacrifices, but if I start to see other people not doing it, there will come a point where a bit of me will say, do you know what, why am I the mug who's doing this when other people are not? Now, if the people are not complying are a small enough minority, and we are policing it in the sense that you know they are getting on the end of social disapproval, and if they keep doing it punishment for what they're doing, then I might be okay. I might carry on making my sacrifices, and other conditional cooperators will do the same, because we can see that the people who are transgressing are being picked up on it. But it's vital that they are being picked up on it, because the danger, the reason it's unstable, is if a lot of people see others not doing what they're supposed to do, then they may cease doing it as well, and you get a kind of snowball. What actually happens is the cooperation can break down, and that that's the outcome that nobody wants here, because if we get that outcome, what it actually means is more of our older relatives are going to succumb to this um, pandemic. So one of the other factors in this conditionality and it, it, that's been important in securing compliance is the message of if we do X, then we expect Y. But this is a bargain. So that also depends on the authorities keeping their side of that bargain. And where they haven't been able to do that, and we have seen they haven't been able to do that, for example, in the area of, of testing and, and contact tracing, how quickly might you expect that compliance to then ebb away? Yeah, that's a very good point. So we know from the behavioural science of crisis communication that trust in authority, the credibility of authority and honesty in authority is a very important aspect. Now, what I would say is we have to give some ground. Um, I mean, authorities are always going to as they are in normal times, be somewhat optimistic about what they can achieve. They'll have plans in place and they'll come across hiccups. Um, behavioural scientists call this the planning fallacy. So they might say to us, look, we'll get to this number of testing in a week or we're optimistic that we can do this. And usually it takes a little bit longer. The numbers will be a little bit lower. It's a little bit harder. <laughs> we call this the planning fallacy. And you see it in normal times, too, with things like infrastructure projects and so on. So we need to cut them a little bit of slack. But you are absolutely right. I mean, if we get to the point where the authorities are telling us they're going to deliver things and they're consistently failing to do it, then people's willingness to make those sacrifices for the common good will reduce because it's not completely clear that the behaviours that are being asked of us are ultimately for the common good. Now, I think it would be harsh at the moment to form that view. Uh, but as we move forward, it's extremely important that we feel like uh, the authorities are transparent and they're being honest with us. And in that context, how important are the messengers, the, the figureheads and so on, the leaders? Uh, they're absolutely vital. And again, one of the things, I mean, the science of this is pretty clear. We know in crisis communication that not only is it vital that there is a really clear description of why the behaviour that is being asked of us is best for all, that's vital. There is also a really emotional component to it, and that comes in two ways, really. One is the degree of group identity, the degree to which we are made to feel like we are a team that is trying to achieve something together. And the other is the degree to which our leaders have empathy. That is, do they really understand what we are going through and do they express that understanding? Now, one of the things that's difficult there, actually, is that the media operate as a filter. 
And one of the things I think is interesting as a behavioral scientist watching this uh, unfold is that if you listen to the speeches of the leaders and politicians live, they actually have a lot of emotional component. There is a lot of empathy expressed. When they go through the filter, of course, news journalists are trained to filter out the information and you know get rid of the guff. <laughs> and they focus entirely on the information. I think in a way, at times like this, that's actually quite unfortunate because it really is important that we understand as citizens that our leaders do realize how we feel and do have empathy for how we feel. So those kind of more emotional, more rhetorical parts of leaders' speeches are more important at times like this. That's what the behavioral science shows. One of the things we've realized in this time is how much our social communication depends on being physically close to people and, you know, being able to touch them and so on. So even if you do meet friends now at a social distance, we're inclined to move along soon enough. What, what does that tell us? <laughs> it tells us that at heart we're creatures. <laughs> you know, yes, you're right. I mean, I think all of us are getting some real insight into the human condition. I mean, the degree to which it's awkward is interesting. When you can't engage in the normal kind of social rituals and kind of comforts that we give each other, it, it, it generates a degree of awkwardness in the conversation. Uh, because, of course, you know, we've learned from the time we were children that when people keep their distance from us, it's because they're being negative about us. It's because they're being standoffish. They're communicating something to us in their body language. So when we have friends and relatives doing the same thing to us, it's quite distressing. It's not easy to deal with. I mean, I do think, however, that one of the best ways round it is humour. Um, and it, it's certainly the case that the more we joke about it and the more we have fun, whether it's mucking about through windows with our family members or whatever it is, the better. I mean, one of the ways we can get around that is humour, because humour is one of the things that really bonds us. So if people are keeping their distance, if they can at least make some damn jokes about it, we'll feel better about it and not feel like we're being rejected, which is what a lot of our emotional response is going to be. Um, how important, uh, Pete, is it to to build understanding in in the the equation you know where you're where you're saying you know you have that versus repeating a message or asking your police force to enforce it and um, how important is the understanding piece uh, it's vital there's two elements to that uh, we know that and people can find repetition irritating but we know that the more often the strategy is repeated in the sense of why is it best for all of us that we do what we're being asked to do that that explanation that communication the more people you hear it from the more often you hear it the more likely people are to adhere to it so um you know there is some irritation in the repetition but it, it is important to get that fundamental understanding of why we are doing this across and that includes the emotional component of that i mean one of the experiments we've already run um, in providing evidence for the department of health here shows that when messages are couched in terms of vulnerable people you are likely to infect or the chances that you might be a person that leads three, six, nine others to be infected, people are more inclined to change their behavior and they, more, they respond more strongly to the message. So there is an emotional component to their explanation, that understanding of why are we doing this? The second thing I would say is feedback is crucial. And I think the authorities have been pretty good on this actually, but I would, I want to hear even more of it. So one of the things we've got to get across to people is what we call the counterfactual, which is 
what would have happened had we not done what we have done? And there's been some of that over the last few days where the modelers have said, look, if we had not put in place the measures and stuck to them as well as we have, we would be looking now at this many more infections, this many more deaths. The reason that's important is this. Human beings learn through real-time feedback when they learn best. So you learn as a kid pretty quickly not to touch the hot plate because it hurts, right? You get real-time feedback on your behavior. One of the things that's difficult here is that the feedback we're getting is highly abstract. You don't notice yourself going another day of not contracting the virus. If you wash your hands and wash that virus off your hands, you will never know and you never get the feedback to say that you have successfully protected yourself by washing that virus off your hands. So some other form of feedback is really needed to reinforce people's behavior. And if that feedback exists in the form of because we've done what we've done, we are in this situation rather than that worst situation, it will help because, as I said, it's really difficult. We don't get the feedback that we normally get when we learn to do things well. So how does Ireland compare to other countries in terms of its social cohesiveness and resolve? Uh, I think we're doing pretty well. Um, should be said, in normal times, we do well. So Ireland punches above its weight as a country in terms of well-being. When well-being is measured here, we're high relative to most other countries. And one of the reasons for that is probably the combination of being quite small, having quite a strong identity. Uh, and ironically enough, that's partly because we're a smaller nation next to a larger one. So other countries, for example, that have high well-being generally are Denmark and Canada. <laughs> who have strong senses of national identity, partly by contrast to their neighbours. It's a very interesting phenomenon. But just pure size matters here too, so that we have quite a cohesive society that has quite a strong sense of identity. Now, I think that has played into our hands quite nicely in terms of dealing with a crisis like this. We are a less polarised society. We're more cohesive, a stronger sense of identity. So in terms of getting that collective action to happen, I think we've managed to do it better than most of our nearer neighbours. And I'm not just talking about the UK here, which I think is not managing this crisis well, but I'm also talking about other countries, France, Spain, um, the clear exception to that is Germany that appear to have handled the situation with you know, some great levels of efficiency. Before all of this, Pete, we were very concerned with, you know, government formation, Brexit and so on. Uh, would you foresee that we would become equally wrapped up in all of those issues once this is over? That's a good question. And I, I genuinely am not sure, but I suspect that the period we are going through here will actually have some lasting impacts. So it will be remarkable how quickly when we finally get the chance to return to normal, we appear to return to normal. And everyone will comment on that and talk about how short everyone's memories are and all that kind of thing. That will happen. But I do think it's quite likely that this crisis will have a long-term impact on some people's values and senses of how problems can be solved and how communities can come together to do things. That's quite likely. The reason I say that is partly evidence-based. Um, we know that communities that go through crises do typically pull together more and that it does have some impacts. Now, quite a lot of the work that's been done on that um, surrounds communities that go through things like food shortages and war. Um, and obviously what we are going through, you know, is not like being in a war, but there are elements that are similar and I suspect that because of that, there probably will be some kind of long-term legacy effect on people's values. And I think one of the ways you'll see that 
is that we'll find afterwards that in the normal business of politics, people refer back to this period um, and use it as an example of ways that things can be done and how things can be achieved. And I think we will probably see that. But I'm saying all of that quite speculatively. The truth of the matter is that we're fascinating to watch. And in all honesty, I don't really know. We currently have the prospect of seeing the restrictions lifted in part in early May. Might that make it a bit harder, though, to keep the social discipline in place when it's not completely restrictive and people know they have a little bit of flexibility? Uh, yes, it might. And not only for that reason. So, yes, you introduce a bit of flexibility. So give people an inch. Will they take more? That's an argument that might have something to it. The other thing is it becomes less clear what the rationale is. I mean, at the moment, the rationale is absolutely clear. We have strong restrictions on because we're trying to slow the spread of this disease because its rise and in infectiousness is quite alarming and it's causing a high death rate. And we're trying to get that down. Right, that logic is inescapable and clear to everybody. Once we get the other side of the peak, if that's what happens, and we start to see the infection rate beginning to fall, it's then less clear what the collective goal is. I mean, obviously, we want to save lives. But if we accept that we're in some kind of trade-off between how quickly we can refer to normality and how we are trying to prevent infection and still save lives, well, Different people might balance that trade-off in slightly different places. It's, it's not totally clear that the goal is as collective and as obvious to everybody. So there'll be a real job there to communicate clearly why are the restrictions at the level that they are, what are the criteria being used, what are we all working towards? Because we know that if you want collective action, if you want everyone to behave towards the common good, the clarity of what the goal is and what needs to be done to achieve it is vital. We've seen situations where tensions are emerging and different groups appear to see each other as threats, for example, the tourist areas or, or with runners. Is, is that inevitable? And is there a risk of this turning into a bigger problem as it goes on? So one of the things that's important here is the degree to which people identify with different groups. So what the authorities are trying to do is they're trying to get a collective sense that we are all in this together and we are all trying to adhere to these behaviours in order to get this common goal. So that's the collective action problem. But of course, within the large group of us that are trying to do this are other smaller groups, whether that's people who live in Dublin and people who live outside, people who have holiday homes and people who don't, people who jog and people who don't. Um, you know, older people who might be more scared of walking close to people than younger people and so on. So there are kind of degrees to which different parts of society will identify themselves as different groups. And that does have the potential to undermine the overall team effort. So the question you're asking is a very good one. And where collective action breaks down, it often breaks down because the collective identity splits into factions. Um, and that is a danger. That's one of the reasons our situation is unstable, because that could happen at some point. And it will particularly happen if there is a particular group within society that begins to argue for a more rapid lifting of restrictions than another group, because then what happens is that collective sense breaks into different groups and the groups will then inform each other's behavior according to membership of those smaller groups rather than the collective effort. So your question's a very good one and it is one of the dangers moving forward. We have to try to move forward as one collective nation that is trying to respond to this and watch out for the possibility of splitting into disagreeing factions. Thanks very much, Pete. 
In the coming weeks, we plan to run episodes in which our experts deal with your queries and questions about coronavirus and the current situation. Send your queries in audio file or text format by email to coronavirus at irishtimes.com. My thanks to Declan Conlon, who produced today's podcast, and thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back tomorrow.